What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. On today's episode, I'm joined by Trey Wilson, the Director of Communications and Broadcasting for the AA Richmond Flying Squirrels. In simpler terms, he's the play-by-play guy. Trey and I talk his journey through minor league baseball, how his experience calling a bit of everything at small West Virginia college led him to multiple states, affiliates, and eventually his job as the voice of the Flying Squirrels. We talk some broadcasting ins and outs, the industry as a whole, and I finally get the answer to how broadcasters actually feel about calling a blowout. It's a really interesting look at a different side of minor league baseball with just truly great perspective from Trey on uh, on this job and this industry and, and everything he went through to get there. I'm really glad he was able to join and share his story. Episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. I would say typically every other Tuesday. You're probably listening to this on a Wednesday because, frankly, I had a, a nightmare travel situation and was unable to get this out on Tuesday, but typically every other Tuesday. And if you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. We're about to cross that that 90 episode barrier. A lot of evergreen content there. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Minor league season's winding down. MILB playoff coverage is headed your way along with 2024 draft content and the prospect hot sheet. As always, it's a great time to be subscribed to Baseball America. And with that, let's talk to Trey Wilson. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Feet on the Farm, he's the Director of Communications and Broadcasting for the Richmond Flying Squirrels, which means he is the play-by-play guy. Trey Wilson. Trey, thank you so much for joining Feet on the Farm. Kyle, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Me too. I've been looking forward to this. You and I, we were talking beforehand, have been internet friends. We, you know, we, we've communicated quite a bit, bonding over baseball. Um, I've wanted to have a broadcaster on the show for a while talk about the other the other journey on the farm uh, other than players um you know you've been at this for for over 10 years now uh you know in your line of work i, I want to dive into before you got into it what was your relationship with baseball you know playing growing up loving the game before you were a broadcaster yeah i grew up uh loving baseball um baseball and as a kid baseball and nascar were like the driving forces of everything that I did. I'm going to uh, stop right there. Have you, have you gotten to call a race before? No, I've always thought that that would be fun. Um, it's always been kind of in the back of my mind, but uh, I've never, I've never done it. I'd love to get a chance to do that someday. There just aren't a lot of uh, opportunities. They, their season overlaps with ours and I don't really have enough connections in that world, but that's always something I thought would be fun. Uh, Man, that'd be, that'd be sick. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good time. But I was a huge baseball fan growing up. I grew up in Southeast Virginia for the most part. Um, child of divorce with two loving parents who lived in different places. So I was bouncing back and forth a lot uh, between military bases in North Carolina, Georgia. Um, but mostly home was always Southeast Virginia. And growing up in Southeast Virginia, of course, we didn't have a major league team that was really close. Um 
the Orioles were the closest team at that time. The Nationals didn't exist until I was in high school. And uh, so like basically everybody else who grew up in the Southeast, I grew up a Braves fan. Um, of course. Of course. Which, uh, you know, we didn't have cable, so it's not even that they were accessible on TBS. Um, we we never had cable when I was growing up. Uh, my grandparents did, so I'd get to see some games when I was there. Um, but it's uh, growing up as a kid in the nineties, uh, you know, they were the team of the nineties, of course, and team of the South too. Team of the Every, South, everyone sure. in the South loved the Braves. Yeah. And Virginia, there are some places that are very much the South and there are some places that are a little a bit of a mix. And there are some places that you feel like you're in the Northeast. And, uh, I grew up in a few different places in Virginia, but, uh, they all lean a little bit more of a, of a Southern culture. And, uh, of course, living in North Carolina and Georgia, um, there was a summer where I lived close enough that I got to go to a couple of Braves games, uh, which was very cool growing up. You know, we didn't have a ton of money. We didn't take a ton of big vacations. I only saw before I turned before I got to college, I went to less than five major league baseball games, probably. Um, so we had a, we had minor league teams in the towns that I lived in. Uh, we'd go to Kinston Indians games. Um, we'd go to Norfolk Tides games, of course, back home, occasionally caught a few games, the diamond in Richmond, uh, which is cool now. Cause I get to call games there. And, uh, but as a kid in the nineties, it was wiffle ball. Every chance you got, it was little league fall ball. Um, it was baseball cards, uh, were a huge part of my, my childhood and connecting with friends and things like that, trading and, and, and buying the, uh, the little $1 mystery packs from the guy that would set up the little league on Saturdays. And uh, I would read the the Virginia pilot of the daily press every day, read all the stories, look at the box scores. Uh, again, didn't really have a game to act a uh, way to access games live, but through the backs of baseball cards and through the newspapers, I was following the big leagues as much as I could. And really all I ever wanted to do was, was be playing baseball. I loved basketball. I played basketball in high school too. Um, and I, I call some basketball now. I really enjoy college basketball. Baseball has always been uh, kind of the, the biggest passion of mine growing up. As you get to college and you, you, you head to Bluefield College, you're intending to play. You've got, you're having some arm trouble <laughs> things. Uh, your playing career don't work out. And things initially with schooling don't work out. You're in like this interesting phase, and this is based on previous conversations that you and I have had of you're out of school for a little bit and you're doing that. Try, you're trying to, you're now in a position where you're no longer going to be a baseball player. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And you spent, I think, what you told me about 15 months away from college at 19, 20 years old. How many different like butterfly effect parts of your life could you could your life have been radically different had you made a different decision than to get back into school and pursue broadcasting pursue journalism yeah i've i try to go with the the renaissance man uh way of living i like a lot of different things i'm really into u.s history and very into music and things like that and uh, i went to college with the intent of playing baseball i got hurt in high school and um now i didn't really have especially now that i work in pro baseball and see the way that a lot of the guys who make it this far grew up around the game. Um, we didn't have a lot of those opportunities. Those were not in the cards financially. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't have great uh, 
hands-on coaching growing up, I had, you know, my dad and and some family members and people at the Little League who were doing the best that they could, but also had some mechanical issues that I was throwing hard, but led to some some injuries. So I, I had an opportunity um, through some conversations with Bluefield. They told me that there'd be a, a chance to to walk on there. Went and met with the coach, and he was like, "Yeah, you come out and work out." But um, I was throwing some on the side, and I just, you know, wasn't in a position where I could get the surgery that I needed to to go forward. And I was trying to fight through it, and and uh, I could throw about maybe fifteen to twenty flat ground throws before I got dead arm from the shoulder issue that I had. And uh, I probably could have rehabbed it. I probably could have stuck with it. I got a little depressed, um, just not really knowing what to do. And uh, I kind of threw in the towel and looking back, I regret it a lot. I, I feel like I probably should have put a little bit more effort into that, but I uh, threw in the towel. And with that, I kind of threw in the towel on anything related to going to class, <laughs> doing the things that I needed to do. And uh, got into some other issues out there at Bluefield, and I was kindly asked to leave. <laughs> and uh, went back home, and I worked a few different jobs. I was working at Kmart for a little while in Virginia Beach, and that sucked. Um, R.I.P. to a real one, Kmart. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going in at like four o'clock in the morning and unloading trucks. But uh, you know, I've seen how some retail operations do at Kmart. It makes sense that they didn't survive. They just crammed everything they could into a truck, no organization to it. So I was taking the boxes off in the 100-degree Virginia Beach heat and uh, taking them into the store. And then we were also the ones who would stock and be out there on the floor with customers. And it was, it was you know, working for five fifteen an hour, which was minimum wage at that time. And uh, so I was like, this is bad. I need to find something else to hold me over for a little while. And I uh, I ended up getting a job at Sam's Club, which was like getting called to the big leagues of retail. Um, ended up getting a job at Sam's Club. And that was a whole different experience. I was making like $8 an hour. <laughs> and, oh, that's big, that is the big leagues. But while I was there, I was like, I really got to figure something out. I can't get stuck in this drain that I love my hometown, but it's, it's a place that uh, people get stuck in some bad things and I needed to get out. And uh, so I just moved back to my college town. I did not get accepted back in, um, but I moved back to be around. I was working at a restaurant. I had a couple of other side jobs. And um, basically meeting with them as often as I could to say, hey, I'm committed to being a good student and all that. And eventually I got the right people in my corner that I went to the dean and said, and they went to bat for me and said, hey, let's, let's let them back in. Let's give them another chance. And I was pretty strong student in that second run in college. Um, I had wanted to work with the music industry before that. So I switched over. I wanted to stick around sports. I got involved with the athletic department there at the college and they gave me some great opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten if I'd been at a bigger school like a Syracuse. Um, got I was going to of- ask about that. Cause I also went to a small school and I've worked as an intern in a minor league team. And it, it's got a similar vibe of it's very all hands on deck and a lot of times they're just looking for bodies. Like I remember when I was in college, I randomly, I had to work the scoreboard at a volleyball game and I knew nothing about volleyball. It's like, <laughs> it's things like that. So I, it, it sounds like that was a huge asset to you of being at a place that, that probably could have used some help in a bunch of different areas. Yeah. A lot of us on the broadcast side have drastically different paths of how we got here. And I tell young people that all the time, you don't have to, there's no set path. And mine was very different from a lot of people. I was at a small school that didn't have a broadcast program. I was a journalism major. I wanted to write. That was really what I wanted to do. But 
there was a flyer posted on campus one day. This is in the early days of video streaming when it's starting to become accessible for not a lot of money. So more and more smaller schools were, were setting up video streaming, which was viewed as a big tool for recruiting. You know, you, if you got people from the West Coast coming to the East Coast, the parents can watch all the games and things like that. And um, I saw a flyer posted or it was an email going around something that was, they were looking for somebody to broadcast to do play-by-play for a volleyball match, speaking of volleyball. And I did know volleyball. I played in high school. I realized pretty early in high school that football down in the 757 where I grew up uh, was probably too small at 6'5", 170. <laughs> home of home of Tyrod Taylor, the Vicks, and, and a lot of other people who, yeah. who could absolutely bang. Yeah, when I was in high school, it was Percy Harvin and Cam Chancellor and Tyrod Taylor and Taj Boyd and all those guys. Really good football area. And uh, so my fall was spent... My buddies were all playing volleyball, so I that looked at that as a way to stay in shape for basketball and baseball, and so I had that knowledge. So they they needed somebody to call a volleyball match. I signed up. I did it. I was absolutely awful. Did a terrible, terrible job. I'd never done play-by-play before, but I stuck with it and kept doing some, some stuff there as a student and got involved with the sports information department, became a student assistant there, eventually got a job. Uh, full job, full-time job in the sports information department. And, and being at this small school like that, like I said, they're, uh, you know, if you're at Penn state or Syracuse or Missouri or some of these places that turn out uh, broadcasters, um, you might not be getting any real game airtime until your junior year on, in some of those programs. And I was able to pretty much get whatever I wanted um, especially baseball and, and men's basketball, women's basketball. And then we launched a football program while I was there too. And I got to call games there for football for a couple of years as a student and uh, not on like a student network, but as the, on the flagship radio station, I was doing the games. So uh, a lot of opportunities that I got are because of where I happened to be at that time and the timing that I was there. There's so many things that worked out to give me that opportunity. And, and I'm really, really lucky that it worked out the way it did. How long did it take you to realize that I've got a little something with this? Because everyone, I, I say this about podcasting. Everyone thinks it's it's you turn on a mic and you're good and anyone can talk. Play-by-play is that times a thousand. Broadcasting is that times a thousand. There's a, so much more that goes into it. How long and how many reps did it really take you to say that if this is something I want to do, I've got the legs for it. I feel like I'm confident. I can sit down in a booth and I can call whatever I need to call. If that ever happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, no, it's I'm constantly trying to get better. I've, I'm a little self-conscious because I don't have the same training that a lot of people have. Um, you know, it's a kind of self-taught with some good guidance from some friends along the way uh, who've helped me get a lot better and some people in the industry. But um, I would say that when I – I would say that it was probably – when I was calling games for the Bluefield Blue Jays, we shared a baseball stadium with them. They had been an Orioles affiliate forever. The Blue Jays came in uh, and I had been covering their team, uh, their prospects as a writer for scout.com used to do the Fox sports run outlet back in the day. And they did minor league prospect coverage. And I had been writing some stories for them. I'd been around the team. I'd gotten to know the organization a little bit and the broadcast position came open and I basically begged the GM. I said, look, I'm here. I know this market. I know this town. I know the organization. Um, I'm a little greener than some of the broadcast people that he would have had applying. But Jeff Gray uh, was was his name. And, and he gave me an opportunity. And um, and 
after that season, I had a pretty good idea that that's what I wanted to do. So I, I kept following the ladder up and I would say I set a goal for myself to, all right, I want to find a sustainable job where I can not have to worry about where my next meal is going to come from, which is another part of trying to break into this industry in that era. Um, by the time I'm 27 years old, that, that was my goal, get somewhere 20 by 27. And I ended up getting a full-time job when I was 26. And uh, and that's when I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do for as long as I can do it. You mentioned not having some of the training and, you know, we'll, we'll get into this, but I don't think it's, it's hard to figure out that this is a industry just like playing in the minor leagues. If you don't have a big signing bonus, this is an industry that is tough financially broadcasting in general has been a profession that often caters to nepotism legacy or just helps to have some financial backing of you can kind of figure things out if you have someone footing the bill. And it's not to besmirch anyone who has had that because there are plenty of talented people with a famous last name. But what are the challenges of of getting a foot in the door in broadcasting that might be holding talent back? Yeah, I think that we definitely... As an industry over the years, especially when I was coming up, it was we had it was pretty exclusive. It's hard to to get in there, and um, not everybody is or should be willing to do the things that a lot of us did in that era. Um, and I'm not alone in having stories like mine where I didn't come from a family with a lot of money. Uh, my my family supported as much as they could, but there wasn't much. I have really loving, caring hardworking family members who were very supportive, but there was only so much that they could do to help foot the bill of what it cost to do this. So uh, after I was in Bluefield, I wanted to, I wanted to move up. I wanted to get to something bigger. So I applied for 50 jobs going into the 2014 season. I came in second a lot and uh, or third. And at the winter meetings in 2013, going into the 14th season, I sat down with Jesse Goldberg Strassler, who's been in Lansing for a long time. And is Super huge. nice person. Another love, another social media from it, just the nicest guy. <laughs> he he really is. And uh, he, he said, hey, we've got this position in Lansing. Um, it, the position's different now, but back then it was, it was unpaid. And um, you get a chance to call all 140 games, home and road. Uh, they set me up with a host family. And... Um, I said, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to make it work. So I had been working at, uh, I worked at a seafood restaurant, a bunch of other jobs. I'd saved up a little bit of money. Um, and they were, of course, helping out. There was a host family helping out with the housing. So really, I just had to figure out how to eat every day. Um, and that was a challenge sometimes. Um, you know, I didn't get per diem on the road. Uh, and... Um, I wasn't getting paid, like I said, by the team. So there were a lot of days. There was, I remember there was this McDonald's on the path, my drive in to the stadium every day where I knew that I could get a McChicken, a small fry, and like a large sweet tea for like $4 and some change. And that could get me through until game time. And, pretty and you're much, not a small dude. Like yeah. you need calories. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I am, uh, yeah, I'm six, five and, and two something do something high. So um, at the time, I actually lost a good bit of weight that summer. It was uh, you know, part because I was, you know, just trying to figure out meals. And uh, so I'd, I'd eat the McDonald's food or whatever, and and I'd go in. And of course, they feed us at the ballpark for dinner. Uh, there's a spread for, for dinner pretty much everywhere we go. Uh, so that was covered. But 
Yeah, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but I had kind of gone through that same type of thing, just trying to get by during the time that I was in college or the time that I was between since in college. Um, and I didn't really think about how, how much of a struggle it was at the time. It was always just a matter of trying to get to the next day and get through it. Um, but because with, with the way that the industry was, it's really not as bad anymore as it was a decade ago, but, um, it does, it does keep some people with some talent from, from being able to chase this. If you don't have some kind of uh, financial backing or, uh, if you're not willing to just do without a lot of things, um, you know, there was a time when I was coming up where I was living briefly, but I was living in a friend's living room as an apartment on a leaking air mattress that would wake up in the middle of the night three times and have to pump it back up because I had reached the floor. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I've got friends who have similar stories. Uh, I know somebody, I'm not going to say his name, but I know somebody who lived in a groundskeeper's shed in a ballpark at one time. And, uh, again, that is not how things really go these days, but it definitely is something that, you know, it excludes people who don't come from some type of help to, to having a chance to break into this industry if they're not willing to go through that. And I don't think that just because some of us went through it, others should have to go through it. Um, so we've done a better job of opening up doors for people to, to get into the industry. Um, there are less affiliated minor league positions now, but also, um, you know, teams can't get away with some of the things that they were doing in the past. And I don't think that the team that I was with you know, any of the teams that I was with were necessarily trying to take advantage of of unpaid or very cheap labor. I think that that's just what the standard in the industry was. And that's how you filled out your staffs. And uh, the yeah, I mean, we think about how they treated some of their some of their players. I mean, they then can't imagine how they would, you know, feel appropriate treating some of their staff. Yeah, well, again, I wasn't even really staff. I was, you know, I was just grateful for the opportunity, paid or not, to get to call games. And uh, from there, I ended up landing some positions that helped give me a stable footing in this industry. And uh, that's the thing is that, you know, you bank on just, just having an opportunity and you wear whatever you can, just thinking this is temporary. At some point I'll be able to, you know, start paying my student loan bills and, 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 uh, and having a full bridge and things like that, and, or going out and experiencing great food all over the place on the road, like I do now. Uh, definitely fortunate to have gotten the opportunity to advance from that lifestyle to where I'm at now. Well, and something you did to supplement too per LinkedIn is is freelance broadcasting jobs, which I was taking a look at. And you know, like you said, you're a baseball guy. You play baseball, you love baseball. You can probably, you know, you could call a little league game if you needed to. Um, in in terms of just knowing the sport, but calling things like track and field and football and and diving into other sports is it what does the pregame crash course look like if you find out you're calling such and such track and field NCAA division two track and field event and just say you know just say you've never done any track at all what is it what is the crash course like is there panic in there I'm fortunate now that I get to pick and choose. So I pretty much only do college basketball and I would do college football, but I like to have the fall free to go to games as a fan and hang out with friends and things like that. But yeah, doing in those, in those earlier days, doing sports where I might've been calling a league somewhere that I wasn't familiar with or a sport that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, it was, um, I would go find as many broadcasts with people who knew what they were talking about pause constantly and look up the words that they were talking about and try to make sure that I had the lingo down. Um, another Jesse Goldberg Strassler plug, he's got the baseball thesaurus, uh, which is great for the language of baseball, his book that he 
has written. Uh, he has a football version of that too, but they don't have something like that for a lot of other sports. So it was a matter of just trying to um, trying to learn as much of the basics as I could about a sport, say if it's different track and field events, um, and then not trying to overdo it. Uh, if I was calling a game with an analyst who had a good, uh, you know, they obviously they're going to have a good grasp of the sport. Um, just keeping it pretty basic on my end and, and letting them carry the broadcast. Uh, otherwise, just trying not to sound too smart, just trying to you know narrate what's happening in front of me. Uh, it's definitely a challenge, definitely a challenge. I'm grateful now that I don't have to fill out the rest of my calendar with sports that I don't know. I'm in a very fortunate position where I get to pick and choose what I do now. Is there a sport that's better, like you enjoy it more broadcasting it than you do watching as a fan or vice versa. I was, it's not the same thing, but I always think about, I love watching hockey in person and I watching hockey on TV does absolutely does very little for me. Is there, is there anything like that? If it's, you're watching it from a different angle, if you're calling something, it it's more enjoyable. I mean, I would say now baseball, it's hard for me to watch a game and just watch it. I mean, well, I, I won't say that's necessarily the case. Um, I don't enjoy watching baseball on TV as much, but I'll listen to baseball on the radio all day. Uh, and um, I would say that that football, uh, I'm not a huge fan of calling football games. So it's a lot of work that goes into, <laughs> you've got a week's worth of work that goes into a three and a half hour broadcast and uh and I enjoy watching the games more as a fan in person in football. Um, but really, calling baseball and calling basketball, they're drastically different because if I'm doing basketball, you know, it's so fast paced. There's not really any time to work in stories or anything like that or to add a lot of, you know, you have to get creative about how you add context to the moments that are happening throughout a game um, versus baseball where you've got all the time in the world. Um, you've got three hours or so every night to tell a lot of different stories. So it's a drastically different style for me, depending on which sport I'm calling. But um, I would say that uh, that that baseball is a game that I really do enjoy getting the fan experience. But if I'm at a game as a fan, I'm probably treating it like most fans do. I'm, I'm half watching the game, if that. I'm enjoying time with friends. I'm ex- taking in the ballpark experience and all that. Uh, it's it's a drastically different uh, experience for me when I'm at a game just watching one as opposed to when I'm when I'm working one. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with people who come out to a ball game to just enjoy time with their friends with baseball as the backdrop. And I like to do that, too. You mentioned telling stories. I told you I was going to ask you this, and I was figuring out where to insert it. So this is a mechanical question about about your job and data. And obviously now we'll, we'll get into we'll get jump back into the career stuff where, you know, you obviously have a been calling minor league games for a long time and I always wonder when it's 15 to 1 in the 5th inning on getaway day whatever like how are you filling that time is that the hardest baseball to call like do you have stories in 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 the back pocket that you need to like how are you saying I need I've got some people listening some of the players parents are listening how do I keep people engaged on this radio broadcast yeah, it's been helpful now that I've been around for a little while, especially now that I've been here with this team in Richmond for a few years where I've got some stories of things that I can tell about games that I was there for, or I've done enough research that I know what was there. I've done enough Richmond baseball research that I can tell some stories. Um, or Blaine McCormick and I, my broadcast partner, we can just uh, you know try to, if we're on the road, like last night's an example, uh, we're in Hartford right now, and the Flying Squirrels were up. I think it was 
14 to nothing in the, at the middle of the fifth inning, it ended up being 16 to nothing at one point, I think. And, uh, but the good news is that when you have a game like that, there's some times where you might be on record watch. Uh, you know, that was the case last night. The team ended up breaking the single game Homer record franchise record. Um, and we were both there, Blaine and I were both there when the previous record was set. And now we have the tools to look up things so quickly. I could find, the last time a team in the Eastern League hit eight home runs in a game, which is what Richmond did last night, was in 2006. It was the Harrisburg Senators. So I could go through. I was talking about Tim Raines Jr. had a couple of home runs in that game. You know, um, trying to add some context to what's happening. That's what I'm trying to do all the time, whether it's a one nothing game in the ninth inning or whether it's a you know 14 to nothing in the middle of the fifth. Uh, just trying to give context and anything that we're any stories that we're telling are usually going to try and tie into what's happening in that game, not just some random filler. Um, sometimes there's random filler that's going to happen. We got 138 games a year at Double A now, uh, but all of it is just usually an effort to try and try and apply context to what's happening in the game that we're currently doing. Uh, whether it's talking about um, the historical relevance of that game. Or just talking about, you know, sharing some of the experience of being in the city that we're in. We were in Portland, Maine last week, which is a fun vacation town, one of my favorite places to go. Game starts to drag a little bit. We're going to talk about some of the great food there in Portland. We're going to talk about why Portland is such a great vacation destination for for New England tourists. And uh, and um, it, just but always trying to keep it tied in some fashion to to the game that we're calling that day. And when calling, when calling minor league games, you you know we'll get into you called you called for in Altoona for a few years, and then you called in Richmond. Obviously, you know there there are people who you know live and die with this minor league team and want them to win and things like that. And um, a minor league baseball is a lot about development, a lot about the experience, a lot about seeing your favorite big leaguers when they're twenty. And when you're calling games. You know, you're calling the league. I, I think there's a not a problem with with homerism, but people will complain about broadcast. You know, they're especially their big league team. Like I prefer, I always watch the Twins broadcast when the Twins are playing someone. Like I want to hear Dick Bremer and and Morneau. I want to hear them talk about my guys like they're they're you know my guys. Is there ever sort of any line to toe? And then on the other foot, when you have a incredible prospect who comes through the league and you're just like I'm in awe of this guy he's on the visiting team I just want to talk about this guy forever is there any sort of balance of how much you got to talk about your team how you got to be you know positive about everything like how do you kind of work that out in your mind yeah well there are a few different things um I try not to be overly homerish uh you know I try to be honest there's some broadcasters that uh, that I say when I listen to, I, I have a hard time listening to them because I can't trust them. You know, I know that when I'm listening, say, a basketball broadcaster and, and he's talking about, oh, that was a terrible call. If I'm listening on the radio and say, well, I, I know your track record enough to know that I can't necessarily trust that that's the case. So I try to be fair, um, you know, even with umpires at this level, it's a development level for them, too. Every now and then they become the story of the game, but uh, that doesn't happen very often. We try to avoid that. But usually try to keep it pretty fair i'm also if, if we're at home and we're on milb tv and a big prospect hits a home run or they're throwing a no hitter or something like that i'm not going to be super excited about it um i'm calling games for a richmond audience and uh and again i'm not going to sound like eeyore i'm not going to get super depressed there might be some <laughs> times where i have done that but um you know with the level of excitement that i'm making a call with is going to 
is going to apply to the, the broadcast that I'm doing, which is for the Richmond audience. And um, it's a different when I go do basketball where, you know, the ESPN plus games, you're supposed to be, uh, you're an, you are a neutral broadcaster. Um, and I don't have the same ties to that. You're not in it every single day. It's a little bit different, but, uh, and as far as the prospects go, I try to here at double a, you know, you can have a guy become a prospect in front of your eyes. You may never hit that top 30 list, but he may do well enough here to, to become a major league player. We try to treat all of our players in particular, um on an even playing field whether it's kyle harrison coming in as uh you know the, the highest ranked left-handed pitching prospect in baseball when he got here last year or marco luciano luis matos patrick bailey some of those guys this year or if it's a guy who was an undrafted uh, especially in this shortened draft era that we're in now you know low low signing bonus undrafted guy who's just trying to carve his path uh, we're going to try to give them all the same amount of attention um obviously sometimes the situation uh, forces you to talk about the bigger prospects a little bit more. You know, um, they obviously, they have a little bit more attention on them. Um, but when it's visiting teams, as an example, like Jackson Holiday was in town with the Bowie Bay Sox a few weeks ago, and he was just lighting it up. <laughs> and uh, so if he's playing well and you're seeing something that's different, and you, man, this guy is different, there's a reason why he's the number one prospect in baseball, then yeah, you're going to talk about it. Um and when he's doing something exceptional, which Holiday did when he was in Richmond, he had a five-hit game. Uh, he was just like every time he came up, it felt like something was going to happen. Um, that's part of the storyline of that week. So it's not that you're overly uh, pumping up the prospects, but that is part of the – if you're just being objective, that's part of the story. This guy's a big deal, and he's playing very well. Uh, and you could be seeing the next future Major League star uh, right here in the minor leagues. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And then is there an emotional weight too to you're so in, you know, you're riding the same bus as these guys all the time you're seeing them. We we talked about a mutual friend, Sam Wolf, who ended up never he never made it to the big leagues, but like rooting for guys. Is it is it a big is it does it feel like a big blow? Like it's a it's a bummer when a guy retires or doesn't make it or gets released or whatever. What is is there a grieving process for you of like, man, I love that guy when he was in Richmond. I wanted the best for him. Yeah, all the time. I mean, every, especially now with the domestic reserve limits and things like that, we're seeing more frequent releases. The, the leashes are shorter on guys that don't have as much investment from the organization. So, um, yeah, there are certain guys that you build relationships with. And frankly, with the job that I have, because I do a lot of player relations stuff too in my job, and I'm in charge of hotels and buses and all those kinds of things and, and uh, coordinating with their families when they come into town for hotels and things like that. So you build some pretty solid relationships with everybody in the clubhouse. And uh, the reality is that not every one of them is going to be good and not every one of them is going to make the major leagues, but you do find yourself pulling for the guys. I mean, if there's a guy who I had on one of the teams that I worked for for a week and he makes the major leagues, I'm going to follow that guy and pull for him his whole career. Unless he was just like a huge jerk, which only happens like once out of every hundred players. <laughs> it's not very often, but I'm, I'm just kidding. Even those guys I would still pull for. 
but uh yeah internally i'm pulling for them for sure but uh when the when the game starts uh, we've got to be honest although i also tend to not harp on the negative the guy's having a bad day and say i'll i'll try to sugarcoat it i'll talk about well today's not going well but here's you know here's some positive here's what he did over these last few outings uh something like that i'm not going to usually sit and and talk a bunch of negativity this is a development level the, the families are a big part of our audience so I do keep that in mind, but also you've got to be honest. So with you, you work for the Blue Jays organization for a few years. You do that, you know, that unpaid gig in Lansing. How did, how did the move to Altoona happen? And what is, you know, what is the broadcaster job interview like? Because if you're like, I'm in sales, I have, there are certain stats about my job. Baseball players have certain stats about their job. You know, how do you come out and say, man, I, I had 400 last year broadcasting. Like I just, I knocked it out of the park. Yeah, you can't really quantify it. So um, I've been on both sides of it. I've been the one looking for the job and I've been the one hiring. And being the one hiring definitely opens up your eyes to how difficult it is to sort through a pool of candidates. Uh, when our job, thankfully, it hasn't come open in a few years, but Jake Eisenberg, when he came in my first year with me, um, there were several hundred people applying for that assistant position. Richmond's a place that people want to be. And then Jake left to go to Omaha. And of course, now he's with the Royals and the position came open again. And we went through that process and hired Blaine, uh, the Cormick who had been with Boise before that. And uh, there were uh, conservatively three to 400 people applied for that job. Um, and maybe out of those three to 400 people, 20 had remotely close to the qualifications that we were looking for before you even listen to the demo, you know, just looking at the resume. So now I've seen that from this side, but going through, um, you know, the, the job application process after I was in Lansing, I had a, you know, now I had a full season under my belt. I had met some people who were going to bat for me. And that's a huge part of this as well. You've got to build out that, that uh, you've got to have some relationships with people who can help you because it's a lot of times that's going to get you a little further in the job process. So I, was applying for basically every position that I could find available in the minors. And I uh, went to the winter meetings. I did the job fair. I would look for stuff on STAA, which is a, a um, job site uh, that's a, kind of like an agency. Um, but there's a job board on there too. Uh, teamwork online is another place where a lot of minor league jobs are posted. And I'd you know, put together my demo. I had my resume. Hey, here's what I've done. I hope to get a call. Usually I'd get an interview and for a lot of them, I'd get down to the finalists that year uh, going into the 2015 season. And I kept coming in like second or third, like I'd, I'd get a call and say, Hey, we really like your stuff. We really like what you're about, but we're going with this guy and here's why, but I liked you. I think that you've got a place in this industry. So let me pass you along to my friend who's also looking for somebody. And I'd go through that process and it's the same thing. I'd come up just short. So finally I had come up, just short for another one. And this guy said, Hey, I know the guy in Altoona, they're going to have an opening your skill set, which for me at that time, I had worked as an SID at a college. So I really had some strengths in a lot of the off the air stuff, the game notes, media guide, writing press releases, writing game stories, things like that. Um, and, and Jesse had helped me develop a lot of that in Lansing too. So they said, hey, this spot in Altoona would be a really good fit for you. Mike Pastanisi is the lead guy. He's a former college SID. He's really talented at the off-the-air stuff. And I think that you'd be a good fit for helping what he's doing. So I went through the interview process with Mike and the curve and uh, got that assistant position. 
with Altoona. And again, it was a place where um, it was really heavy on the off the air stuff. And that's an area where I think I've kind of separated myself over the years. And, um, and Mike ended up leaving halfway through that first season. He took a PR job with the New York Mets and now he's with the giants, which is great because I get to do some work with him working with the giants affiliate in Richmond. But uh, I, after the season, I got offered the full-time position. And like I said, I was 26. That was the goal that I had set for myself was to try and get a full-time spot by the time I was 27. And, um, and, and I was there, I was in Altoona. Um, but going through the job process, it was my, my strategy was to, showcase a diverse set of skills i think i can call a decent game but i can also find storylines and stuff that we can use for the game notes i know indesign i know photoshop illustrator uh adobe premiere i can do video editing i can do audio editing i can do all this multimedia stuff that you guys need because you need somebody who's going to be running social media back then teams usually have their own person for it now just as social um, you need somebody who can help with marketing you need people who can run the website who can do back then html coding and i had all that so that really, I think what I lacked as a play-by-play -play broadcaster early on, I covered a lot of ground in getting opportunities because I could do a lot of the off-the-air stuff and I could kind of handle my own on the air. Well, and walk me through some of that off-the-air stuff because one of a discussion we had in the past, I have a bunch of old Altoona Curve bobblehead promotional nights because I had a friend on the team who, who just grabbed a bunch for me and you had a hand in a lot of those. So when you, you know, I, I want to hear more about that stuff, like how that comes. Like, I think, I don't know if it's Pedro Alvarez, but it was some, it was someone had a known bobblehead. Maybe it was like a Garrett. Josh Cole. Harrison. Josh Harrison. Yes. So when you're, when you're going through with something like that, when you're, you know, your job is not just calling from first pitch to the end when you're, you're figuring all that stuff out. Like what, walk me through the creation of a promotion. Yeah. And it varies very much from team to team with Altoona little bit smaller front office they do really well i have a lot of respect for what the altoona curve do in such a small market they got the smallest market in double a and um they are one of the most creative teams promotionally i think in minor league baseball especially during the first couple of years that i was there and uh basically in the off season everybody who works in kind of the creative realm uh so you know your marketing your graphics all those people we all get together and we talk through ideas there are meetings um somebody's putting together a promotional schedule and then uh, you've got a person who's in charge of working with the manufacturers for things like bobbleheads to go through designs. Um, later in my time there, I had a little bit more of a hands-on uh, part in how the bobbleheads looked and things like that. Uh, they did a like a 20th anniversary all-time team and I, I did kind of the, I wanted to showcase, you know, the different jerseys across the spectrum of the team history and that. So went through and made sure that they were all just right and picking which players and coaches those were going to be. Um, but it's a pretty collaborative uh, process in Richmond. We have a lot bigger staff, um, but there's, there's, there are suggestions coming from basically every department. Uh, you're taking fan feedback. You're taking, um, just letting the creative people come up with creative ideas on things that will help draw people to the ballpark or with your promotions. They're either, you're either trying to draw people to the ballpark or you're trying to enhance the experience of the people who are coming to the ballpark. Um, and usually it's a mix of both. Um, so trying to come up with things that will be, um, and there are different strategies. Some teams want to make the national headlines. I'm not as worried about making national headlines for big promotion as I am about selling tickets or you know enhancing the experience of people who are there so i'm not as big on like yeah you know back in the day it used to be oh we got a darren Ravel tweet or you know sports <laughs> illustrated ran a story on this or something like that 
that's cool. But at the bottom line is, is it going to put butts in seats? Is it going to get people interested in coming out to the ballpark? Um, so you kind of you kind of play that balance a little bit. You do a couple years at Altoona, and then you you know you get me you get you get the gig at Richmond, which is a special place for me. It's where I saw my first baseball game, many of my first baseball games. Um, it's got a special place in your heart, clearly you take a lot of pride in this job and, and this organization that is playing in a ballpark that was built during the Reagan administration and still having success. Why, why is that? Why is Richmond special? You know, when the opportunity came open, um, Jay Burnham was here. He's at UMass now and, and Jay and I are friends. I love Jay. And they um, basically, he was leaving to go home. He was going to UMass. He was taking that job and he reached out and said, Hey, this job's coming open. You know, if you're interested, get your stuff together. Leaving Altoona was really difficult because I really liked the job I had there. Great relationship with the Pirates. Um, great relationship with the fan base there. But you just don't great get roller coaster where... proximity. That's yeah, that's, that's true. Probably <laughs> top two in the minor leagues in roller coaster proximity to ballpark. So you got <laughs> Altoona and Brooklyn. Huge, huge, <laughs> huge stat there. Yeah, I mean it's a nice town, and uh, I really liked a lot of things about being there. But you don't get to pick where you go in this game. So a chance to go basically home close to home was impossible to pass up, but really also a chance to be in a big market with a really, I mean, the curve are really successful in what they do, but uh, it's on a different level in Richmond. It's apples and oranges. You can't really compare even within the Eastern league. It's hard to compare um, what different teams are doing just because the markets are so different and the resources are so different, but uh, you know, going to a place where, you know, Flying Squirrels led all of double A and total and average attendance last year. I always loved calling games as a visitor because not only did you always have big crowds, but the diamond for all of its flaws is very loud. It's a big concrete structure with the the overhanging uh, awning roof up there and uh, the canopy. And it's, it's very loud. The fans are really in it. Um, and they are in Altoona too, but it's an older market. It's a little quieter. Um, but also it's a, you know, it's, it's a bigger city and it's an organization that has been one of the kind of standard flagship organizations of minor league baseball for the last decade and getting to come in and see how this, this organization operates on the inside was, I mean, it's, there's a reason why they're so successful in their, and Parney, our CEO is obviously a legend in minor league baseball in a lot of different areas, but, um, under his direction and our GM Ben Rothrock and our AGM's Ben Terry and Anthony Opperman, they've become they've they've really adjusted with the times and I think are now one of the uh one of the best organizations at how to how to run a minor league organization in the era that we're in now, uh taking good care of their staffs, um, thinking about um taking care of yourself a, a little bit. Um and and it's ha- it's led to some some success, you know, in our books and, and in our attendance every year. Um, so coming down here, it's just, it's, it's just a whole different, it's a whole different ball game working at Richmond. And I'd see it from the outside. I got a chance now to see it from the inside for the last four or five years, whatever it's been. And uh, this is a place where I've got the resources to do my job well, and I don't have to, you know, completely run myself into the ground to do it. And uh, really appreciative of that. Yeah, the success of Richmond, just from a personal, I grew up going to Richmond Braves games, and when the Braves left town, they were AAA. When the Braves left town, it was like, it was panic in the streets. Um, you know, it was, and 
the fact that Richmond continues to, I, I think it's it's not just that they led double A, it's that they outdraw cities that are bigger than Richmond. Richmond is a big, you know, is a capital city, is whatever, but like I am in San Antonio. Richmond is outdrawing San Antonio by a considerable margin. Um, and San Antonio is in this situation where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do about a ballpark where it's the discourse between that and the Spurs has been, um, picking up a lot of, lot of attention, a lot of time, a lot of frustration and things like that. And yet you, it seems like you still talk about the diamond despite being older than both of us as, as an asset to, to the to the squirrels and to the organization like how can you point to that it doesn't have you know it's not like one of these brand new ballparks that has all of these different accoutrements and and fun things about it what about just this big old concrete hunk is is helpful i don't know that the diamond itself is necessarily helpful other than the fact that it's a big facility it feels big when you're there and it's loud um it's got some weight it's got some interesting weight to it when you walk in it it does feel it it the the size of it is important yeah exactly yeah it's different than a lot of minor league parks uh, john miller recently i was talking with john miller and uh the, of course, the giants of course um i was in cincinnati with the giants on an off day when we were in akron and and john was talking about calling games to the diamond during the strike season uh espn did sunday night baseball minor league coverage and they carried the governor's cup that year the international league and he we even talked about you know back then about how impressive the diamond was because it didn't feel like a minor league park. It was this big imposing. And he he kept going on about it It had an upper deck. There just weren't minor league stadiums at that time that had an upper deck. And I would say flying squirrels have made the most of what they've been given um, playing games in the diamond since the first year and and doing things in spite of the things the diamond lacks, Uh, creating an entertainment an entertaining atmosphere for fans every night. I don't think the fans in Richmond fully understand what they're going to have when we do finally get that new facility. Um, We're in Hartford right now. They have a brand new state of the art stadium. And I went and walked around during the game last night and I'm just taking notes on all these different things that when we do move into that new stadium in a few years that we're going to be able to do for fans and the people who are making those decisions are miles ahead (laughs) thinking about those things. But the Flying Squirrels, because they had an outdated facility that don't we don't have a lot of the uh, bells and whistles that fans get in other markets yet. Um, they had to get really creative in how they were going to have success, and it's uh, you know it's 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 a lot of it is on being involved in the community from the very beginning, um, relentlessly being involved and in being a community asset. People gravitate to that; and they want to be a part of it. Um, they see what we do out in the community. They see that the mascot Nazi is out there making 500 appearances a year at schools and community events and things like that. Um, they have done a great job of saying, look, if you like baseball, you can come out here and you can enjoy a baseball game. If you don't care about baseball at all, this is a great place to come out and spend time with your family and friends. And whether you, if you're the hardcore baseball fan or a casual minor league fan, or just, I mean, if you're a hardcore baseball fan or just a, a fan coming out because you just want a night out, this is a place where you can come make some memories and have a good time. And that's kind of the model all across minor league baseball, um, a little bit of baseball and a lot of a circus. And uh, and the the Flying Squirrels have have done an incredible job uh, of, of finding that balance and really doing making something for now 69 home games a year 
that people want to come out and be a part of every night. And uh, every night is a unique and different experience. And you leave there. We, the goal is to have everybody saying that this is a night that they'll remember and that they had a good time. So for you, you still have decades left in your baseball journey. That's what old. do you, what do you want? Yeah. Knock on wood. What do you want out of a life in baseball in, in this career? I think all of us want to be in the big leagues, you know, um, even if I just got there and just caught a few games as a villain or something like that, that'd be a dream come true. Um, but in the more realistic terms, uh, I'm in a place that I really enjoy being. I could spend the rest of my life in Richmond uh, working in this job, and that would be great. I, th I think that there's – I wouldn't say that I'm complacent. I'm always striving to get better and always trying to figure out ways that we can do things better. And frankly, the expectations in Richmond don't allow anybody to get complacent. Uh, there's pressure. It's a it's an all-hands-on-deck uh, operation to get that ballpark filled up every night. And uh, there are a lot of different ways that we do that. And uh, so there's always a challenge in front of you. There's, it's a job that um, that doesn't get, I don't get bored because there's always something to do. And a lot of times it feels new or, you know, it's, we're competitive people. Um, so we want to go out there and, and draw as many fans as we can. Uh, we want to put together as good of a product as we can. I'm, you know, I want to have the best media relations department in the league um, or the minors or whatever big leagues. I don't care. I want to do as well as we can. Um, I want us to have as good of an MILV TV broadcast from the production standpoint, the cameras and the replays and all that, which we're working with. We don't have quite the equipment there that some of the other people have, but our guys do an incredible job. And when we do move to that new facility, I think we'll finally be able to, to fully hit our stride with what we can supply for fans there. So th this job has enough challenge to it that I don't think would ever stop that I could be here and be happy and get to be the voice of, you know, uh, what is uh, uh, one of the most visible sports brands, at least in Virginia, but probably even beyond that. Um, you know, we are the top, top drawing sports entity in Virginia. So um, th it's a job that I really enjoy. I'm really lucky to have. And if I'm here for the rest of my career, that's awesome. I'm not going to be complacent with just like coasting through each day thinking, well, this is where I am. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm good enough for this. I'm, I'm always trying to do things better. Um, but obviously the big leagues would be the goal, but those jobs just don't come open. You know, there's, there's so few of them and, and they just, it's not like that there's a guarantee that if you spend this much time in the minors and you do well, that you're going to get that job. I got a little rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. Let's do it. Favorite minor league ballpark? Um, it's a tie. One of them's not a minor league ballpark anymore. It's more sentimental, uh, and that's Bluefield. Um, you know, college ballpark for us and where I started my career. And I also just love it. They got the, um, it's got a very old feel, um, and it's got the mountains in the background. It's a beautiful place. But I think my favorite minor league ballpark is actually there's a little sentimentality to it. It's Altoona um beautifully designed stadium for the fans for the working people there you've got the roller coaster the old wooden roller coaster behind right field it's spacious it's uh it feels like i mean a lot of it was modeled kind of after camden yards which is one of my favorite big league parks so that makes sense but it is a comfortable place to take in a game as a fan it's a different experience than most other places in the minors um there are lots of other great ballparks that i've been to that i really like um, especially some of the new ones. I really like some of the old ones in the Appalachian League, the Midwest League, but Altoona is probably my favorite one that's still a minor league stadium. Favorite minor league stadium food item? Uh, we used to have something in Richmond called the mac and cheese brisket ball. 
I really enjoyed that. It was uh, like a big fried ball of dough with brisket stuffed inside of it on a bed of mac and cheese. Really anything along those lines, I'm down. Um, I I try to try stuff as we go around to the different parks. I had the buffalo chicken cone in Hartford last night. So it was fine. Um, <laughs> you know, I happened to be in Erie when they did the uh, the cotton candy hot dog. Uh, it was disgusting, but I ate it. <laughs> so I'll give anything a try. But really, if it's got meat and something fried, I'm down. Let's so do on that subject, are is it you? Are the staples at these ball because they're uh, it's again it's part of the minor leagues. Let's try something new with food. Sometimes things are a huge hit. But are the staples usually better than the 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 late the fat item? It varies. Uh, sometimes the teams try to make something creative that just doesn't have like super high quality ingredients, so it looks great and it's interesting and eye catching, but then it's not actually that good. Um, but I always said, again, I take this into the work that I do now. Uh, but when I was working at a restaurant, we would, um, I was taught at one of these restaurants that the presentation of the food is extremely important. You could have the best ingredients in the world, but if you lay them out softly on the plate, people aren't going to think it's as good. They're, their eyes are the first thing that they experience the food with. Sometimes the smells, but the eyes are usually the first one. So the um, they they also said like you could have the most average ingredients in the world. You could just get like the most random run of the mill stuff. But if you organize it really well, it looks good on the plate. When you take it out, people are going to say, oh, my God, this is so good. Um so I take that actually into what we do. I want our presentation for our game notes and our graphics and everything. I want it to look really good. I want it to look professional because the eyes are the first thing that are going to see it. You're going to see all the layout first, the media guide and things like that. So I've actually carried that into what I do here. But to tie it into what we're talking about, yeah, sometimes those those specialty items aren't really great because they're not necessarily using high quality ingredients, but sometimes they do. Um, but the ballpark staples are usually hard to hard to miss. Like I, I the hot dog cart in Richmond is right underneath our booth. Oh, so that's dangerous. The, that's the dangerous. smells. Yeah, the smells of the hot dogs come up in there. So when Blaine takes over in the fourth inning, a lot of times I got to head down and grab just a regular stadium hot dog, and it hits the spot. It's the best stadium hot dog. Little little ketchup, little may or a little mustard. Um, no ketchup. No ketchup. Really hard pass. Yeah, mm. mustard only. That's your loss, sir. Uh, if you could steal a home run call, someone's home run call, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. I'm not a big like scripted or repetitive calls guy. I try to be really organic. No, like catchphrase. So, like, I don't really have any catchphrases. Um, you know, some of my favorite broadcasters do. John Miller, adios, pelota, and and uh, Greg Brown was super kind to me when I was with Altoona. He's got a bunch, obviously, for the Pirates, and uh, even Joe Block, also with the Pirates, has there it goes is kind of his home run call. Um, I try to be organic. I don't have anything planned out. I don't have anything that I just go to as a reflex. So I wouldn't say that necessarily like a home run call would be something that I would want to want to steal. Um, I do wish that I could have like the voice to carry the moments of big excitement that some of my favorite broadcasters have. Uh, I don't. I try to be self-aware. Um, I I feel like that's probably one of the weaker areas of my broadcasting. Um, but yeah, I'm not a big calls guy. I'm not a big like scripted calls guy. I like to just whatever comes in the moment. I like to go with that. What big league star do you feel like you were in early on? Like, who did you see early that you were like, I'm talking about this guy before anybody's talking about him? Oh, man. Um, ah, that's a tough one. I've gotten to see some 
some incredible prospects on the teams that I was working with. Even the first year that I was covering prospects in the minor leagues, the Bluefield team for the decade before with the Orioles had only produced like four or five major leaguers. And then that very first year that Toronto was in town, they had a rotation with at various times, Noah Syndergaard, Aaron Sanchez, Joe Musgrove, Kevin Pillar was on that team. Uh, it was just a stacked rookie ball <laughs> Appalachian league team. Um, so I think Kevin, I'm, he's not necessarily a star, but, but Kevin Pillar carved out a long big league career. Yeah, I think he was a 32nd round draft pick. He was out of a D2 school in California. And I remember the first half of his season in Bluefield, he didn't do great. In the second half, he was one of the best hitters in the league. And just the fact of him getting to the big leagues and having a sustained career based on his quote unquote prospect status when he came out of the draft, um, you know, that was one of the first ones that I saw and said, that guy's pretty good. I don't know why people aren't higher on him. And he was in the big leagues two years out of rookie ball. Um, you know, getting to see there, I wouldn't say more of like catching these guys before other people. Cause in double a, by the time they get here, a lot of the guys, you kind of know what they're going to be. Some guys do carve a path for themselves here, but some guys that I didn't give up on, I thought were too good to be bad that we had in Altoona, like Tyler glass now in Austin Meadows, um, two great guys that played on uh, some of the Altoona teams that I, I had that there were some times when they struggled in the big leagues. And I was just like, no, these guys are way too good to be that bad. And I don't know what I'm talking about, but I just had that gut feeling. And obviously glass now has really turned out to be a really good major league pitcher. He was also great in Oppenheimer was, was just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I need to commend him on his, on uh, getting his acting career started. <laughs> and uh, Austin Meadows, obviously he's been out for a little while dealing with uh, the things that he's dealing with, but um, he did have some really good major league seasons once he left Pittsburgh too. Um, but I've seen so many great talents come through the minor leagues. I've been really lucky. My teams that I've worked with and the opposing teams, uh, uh, it's a cool part of this job, especially with the guys that were on your teams to see them go on to have major league success. Josh Bell would be another one. Um, when he was in Altoona, I remember it took him almost a year in double A to get his first double A home run. And people were like, man, this guy's not going to hit for any power. Like, hey, he's 20 or 21 or whatever he was at double A. He's a switch hitter. It's going to get there. The last thing that comes is the grown man power. That's yeah, that's what they say. So, um, yeah, he got there. He's he's become a pretty good power yeah. hitting option. Yeah, he, got, he got there a little bit. Got there a little bit. All right. Last one. Everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story for the minor leagues? Uh, yes, several. <laughs> um, uh, all right, I'm going to take the names, faces, and locations out of this one. Um, but there was a – we had a trip. It was a getaway day, obviously, a Sunday. No, it was a Monday. It was Memorial Day afternoon. And um, this trip back was probably about eight, eight or nine hours scheduled. We made it about an hour into the trip, and the bus caught on fire while we were going down the interstate. Caught on fire. Yeah, um, the basically like there's the oil drums in the in the brakes or something like that. From what it was explained to me, and it overheated and got hot, and there were flames coming out the side of the bus. So we pulled off the side of the road. They got the fire out, but we couldn't go anywhere. This is back in the one bus days. Now, thankfully, we travel with two, um, and that helps a ton. But uh, basically, they limped the bus up to a truck stop, and and we had to sit there and uh it's memorial day so they couldn't really get a local bus company for where we had broken down to come pick us up and take us the rest of the way it was hard to find anybody so they had to dispatch another bus from closer to where we were going and trying to leave the name spaces and locations out of this <laughs> and uh 
so we had to sit there for about six or seven hours um basically like there was a mcdonald's at this truck stop so it was memorial day the guys went in and uh, some of the guys got some drinks and some of the guys got some, you know, quarter pounders and stuff like that. And they had a little Memorial Day cookout and had the picnic tables outside the truck stop. And we just hung out there for like six hours. Um, I got a couple of other ones, but uh, they're probably not as uh, not as friendly for putting out there. <laughs> but uh, that one it definitely is the way that we travel um, or just if you travel a lot anywhere, you're going to run into some hiccups every now and then. And we certainly run into those. And as the person who is in charge of all the travel stuff for the team I'm currently with, it is basically talk about nightmares. That is my nightmare is anything going wrong with the hotels, the buses, because I'm the one who has to answer for it and get it fixed. Oh man. I didn't think about that aspect. Well, Trey, that is all I've got for you. Uh, you know, and, and enjoy calling tonight's game. Thank you so much for joining Fina on the farm. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me. This was a good time. You got it. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Trey Wilson for stopping by, walking us through his journey through the minor leagues. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe. Check out the other episodes. We got almost 90 deep, a lot of great interviews there. Go find one from your favorite player, someone from your favorite team. And with that, we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.